This is CliffCentral.com. Should the state be able to decide what substances we may or may not put in our bodies? Or should we be free to make such decisions ourselves? What do we do about the tension between the freedom to decide to take a drug in the first place and the fact that an addictive drug may actually take away a person's capacity to make free choices? If the state should play a role in respect of drugs, or at least in respect of some drugs, what kind of role would be appropriate? On today's episode, Freedom versus Drugs. This show is brought to you by the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom and hosted by Gwen Nguenya and Mark Oppenheimer. So Gwen, let's talk about this issue. Should someone be free to put a harmful substance in their drug, in, inside their body, um, smoke marijuana, do cocaine, do heroin, does the state have any role in regulating that? Right. I think for me the central crux of that question is around harm. So potential harm to yourself and harm to others. And perhaps those two questions need to be dealt with separately. I mean, around the harm to others, I understand why some might say the state has no role because as long as you don't harm anyone else, then there's no need to, to criminalize it. And I think that's a good way of understanding crime. I mean, you might differ because, you know, you're a lawyer, but I think victimless crimes especially we should seek to to reduce or to, to, to minimize the sentencing of victimless crimes. But for me then the interesting question becomes is that crime truly victimless? So even though you're taking you know, this recreational drug in the comforts of your own home, there is the potential that it makes you more dangerous in the same way that drinking might incapacitate you from being able to drive, etc. So you don't know what you might then do after once you're in that high and you know that, that altered state. Okay, so drinking is a good example. Yes. Um, you know, the America experiments with this idea of prohibiting alcohol on the grounds that, you know, drunk people kill a lot of people. You have a lot of deaths that are related to alcohol in the States every year. Um, deaths resulted from harm to others, spousal abuse, harm to self, you know, uh, people drinking themselves into oblivion, um, liver cirrhosis, etc. And what they found was when you had that prohibition, it led to the creation of this black market um, that organized crime, ran rife, um, and it didn't lead to people stopping drinking. It just meant that they bought from a different source. So America, again, has sort of involved itself in this war on drugs um, with hardline measures to prevent people from you know, accessing drugs, policing people, um, massive levels of incarceration um, for – you know, for a variety of, you know, possessing certain kinds of drugs. And they have this sort of strange and consistent policy that in 20 states in America, um, medical marijuana is legal. In a number, recreational is legal. But in others, um, you can be sentenced to life. Yeah. Um, so they've got this sort of policy difference. Um, so how do we deal with that if there is an analogy between alcohol and drugs? Well, I think that's, I mean, just to go, before I go into maybe the economics of the black market and other issues that might be harmful by creating a black market is the issue that we are quite inconsistent in how we treat, you know, perhaps mood or attitude, you know, altering substances. And I think, for example, with the example of alcohol, fine, alcohol itself is not prohibited, but you can't drive while you're drunk because the, the idea is that you are a particularly risky person at that point in time and you pose a danger to others. Mm. So with drugs, I don't think you necessarily need to get into a car, but if you have a drug where you can make you hallucinate or make you excessively aggressive, you wouldn't need to necessarily get into a vehicle to start posing a danger to society. So we do see that with alcohol, we may not prohibit the alcohol itself, but we do have laws in place that prevent, um, you know, dangerous behavior or people being a danger to others. So the question might be, at which point would you want to limit drugs being a danger to, to, to others? 
So it's an interesting question about whether we should prohibit, um, you say, victimless crimes when yes. what, the purpose, what the person has done is not commit a harm but create a risk of harm. Yes. So you might think that speeding is one of these things, right? That if you're speeding down the highway and you don't hit anyone, um, you haven't hurt anyone, but it was you increased the likelihood that you would. And so we want to have some sanction for it. Okay. Now, the alcohol case, it seems like if you're going to drink in a public space like a bar, um, that you don't need the car to cause the harm. Your, your risk levels you know, accelerate, you're on other people, people get more aggressive. Um, mm-hmm. There do seem to be you know, firm analogies there uh, where we still don't want to prohibit the mere drinking, even though the behavior in of itself could lead to heightened risks. Um, but let's assume we're talking about a drug that doesn't cause any harm to third parties. So let's say the drug is going to make you hallucinate, but it's also going to make you want to you know, lie on your couch for eight hours until the hallucination stops. There's no harm that you're going to go and peel anyone's face off. Does the state have any right to prohibit that conduct? Well, for me, I mean, and, and that's really the kind of drug we might want to be talking about. So that's why I might perhaps be more in favor of looking at the, the consequences, the, the symptoms of certain drugs and not really, put, you know, having a blanket position mm. on all types of drugs. But now if you are in the arena of dealing with a drug where you know that it's not going to, at least in the majority of cases, drastically alter your behavior and one is still, you know, have full control over their their, mant- their, their mental uh, faculties, then I think there it's, it's much more an issue of, you know, this, the government or anyone else probably doesn't have a role to play in limiting what you can and can't do with your own body. But an interesting, and I mean, I'm, I'm to some extent playing devil's advocate. I just like to consider, well, how does this compare with another scenario? But then I think of the organ trade, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reasons of, well, I suppose there's many, maybe I'm introducing an even more complex topic, but I think there are other areas in which um, we've said you may not engage in this activity. You know, you may not sell your body, for example. You can't even legally enter into a slave agreement with someone. Mm-hmm. So there are certain instances where we actually do try and protect people People from themselves, even if the harm relates to just their own body. And I think that might speak to, if I try and draw a common thread between all of those instances, it's to try and protect those who whose ability to make an objective decision might be limited. So typically someone who might sell their body is because they're desperately poor and starving, etc. So they're, they're at, at a greater risk of being exploited and not making those decisions as objectively as someone else might be. And we might argue the same maybe with, um, with drugs to so say there are some, you know, we might want to limit drugs, people of a certain age or in certain circumstances because they're less, they have less capacity to really make a choice about whether or not to engage in that behavior. So I think you're right to draw this golden thread, right, that really what we're talking about is a policy of state paternalism. And yes. the idea behind paternalism is the state says, we know what's best for you. We're going to use coercive measures to ensure that um, you do what is actually mm-hmm. best for you. And there's a whole bunch of cases where that's going to come up. So one might be something like prostitution where the state says, we think it's inherently bad to prostitute yourself and therefore you can't do it. Doing drugs is inherently bad for you. Um, engaging in other kinds of risky behaviors might be bad. So you, th- you can imagine a truly paternalistic state saying um, certain kinds of mountain climbing are going to be very dangerous and you might die. So it's prohibited. Um, you know, eating certain kinds of fatty foods might, you know, lead to you dying of a heart attack. So it's prohibited. Um, mm. You know, we start to get more and more uncomfortable once the state reigns in enough of your free choices. And so we've got to ask ourselves, when is paternalism justified? And I think you've drawn this great distinction about saying, well, capacity matters. So mm. it seems perfectly fair to be a paternalist about your child. 
you know, you're, if you're, you've got a young child, they don't really know everything about the world yet. They're still learning. Um, their appetite for risk is often very distorted. They don't really understand the true consequences of risk. They make bad decisions. And it's fair to constrain your child in the activities that they choose. And if your kid says, well, you know, I don't want to wear a helmet when I'm, you know, riding my bike, you can say, well, I'm forcing you to do it because if you fall and you, and you crack your head, it's going to, you know, undermine your well-being, you know, for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Um, now, when you're dealing with someone who's a, a truly conscious agent, who has evaluated all the risks. So imagine you've got the educated drug user who says, look, I've looked into the substance. I know that it's going to be bad for my, my overall well-being. Okay. It's going to, uh, affect my, my, my liver and it's going to be bad for my brain chemistry. Um, and I've thought about all that stuff and I'm willing to, to take the risk or, or the certain harm. Um, and th- I think that's a good point that you raise about potentially having an educated user. But then mm. for me, there lies then the road to making a distinction because I think in the beginning we might approach this argument in a very absolutist way. You know, does the government have a role um, in deciding what I can do? Mm. The question maybe doesn't have to be so absolutist, but to say when can when can the government step in? At which point? And you might say, well, somebody who's fully aware of the situation makes it, um, you know. With, is of a you know particular age and is aware of what they're doing. You know you can you can set out a list of criteria, but then that's where perhaps it doesn't become an absolute you know, whether the state should get involved or not. But to what extent? And you might say instead of criminalising that behaviour in the instance of drugs, you perhaps might want to legalise drugs, but then actually license them in the same way that perhaps. Well, it would work differently from, I suppose, for medicinal reasons where a doctor might need to prescribe it for, but if it was entirely for recreational purposes, perhaps you might have to, you know, have a nurse or a pharmacist read out to you the effects of that particular drug and you sign a form that, yes, you've understood all the, the potential consequences and you agree to it anyway. But I think what, what this, the proper solution probably lies somewhere between where there would still be regulation, but it becomes a question of what do you regulate? So I think that's that's definitely one approach where we say the state's role really is to have an educative function. You make sure that everyone knows what they're in for, and this is a kind of line with cigarettes, let's say. You know, that's yeah. over the years the state has played a big role in educating the public about the dangers of smoking. Um, you know, that it's it's going to, you know, lead to higher risks of getting cancer, of heart disease and of death, and ev- as long as everyone is aware of it, then they can make a free choice. Now, where it gets difficult, of course, is when you're dealing with a substance that undermines your autonomy. So, you know, Mark Twain has this famous quote about smoking. He says, quitting smoking is easy. I've done it a hundred times. So when you're dealing with substances that are incredibly addictive, you know, you might think that that first time that you make that choice, um, it's a free choice. But every subsequent time isn't a free choice. It's a coerced choice. You know, and you might think that you're dealing with a person whose autonomy has been severely undermined by the substance itself. And so there the paternalist might have more reason to, to interfere and say, hold on a sec. If you're making free choices that are bad for you all the time, you know, let's say you say, I, I really like, um, boxing. Um, and every time I, free, I can freely choose to go into the ring and, you know, face the risk of someone pummeling my face in. But every time I'm able to re-choose, there's nothing mm. addictive about boxing, you know. But if I'm going to take cocaine, maybe the first time I get to choose, but every subsequent time gets harder and harder for me to really choose. And eventually I'm a slave to the drug. Yes. You know, uh, so John Stuart Mill gives this example about someone who would sell themselves into slavery permanently. He thinks that the problem there is that it's you can't revise your decision ever. Yes. Your autonomy is permanently taken away from you. And so if you care about autonomy... But is that value, not the same as euthanasia? There's no going back. Yeah. It's yeah. a final decision. It's a final decision. So this is an interesting question, right? So let's say um, 
do we respect people's choices to kill themselves? I mean, that's the sort of most extreme version. Let's say talking about a drug that'll just kill you. Okay. Um, do we, do we care about the underlying conditions when they make that choice? Because we know it's a permanent choice. Um, and I would think it's very fact, fact dependent. Mm-hmm. So someone who's in immense suffering, um, and will, will eventually die in a horrible way, the terminal cancer patient. You know, we start to feel much more sympathetic for their free choice to be able to take this pill that will end their life in a controlled way that's up to them as opposed to up to the disease. Yeah. If you're dealing with a depressed teenager who's just broken up with their lover, you know, and they say, well, I just want to end it all. There's no point in living anymore. We start to feel a bit more uncomfortable with them taking the pill. Yes, even though that's a very subjective um, assessment. Losing yeah. the love of your life to someone may be as traumatic and irreversible a process as someone who's facing terminal illness. Who are you to say that terminal illness is worse? So there's sort of, as you say, there's the subjective and the objective state of affairs. So, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the wizened parent looking at their, their teenager who's lost their you know, first boyfriend knows that, you know, heartbreak is high, that it feels like it'll never end, but themselves have gone through mm-hmm. heartbreaks and they get over it and they, you know, harden up. Yeah. But the terminal case we know it will eventually result in death. What's more complicated is this. But maybe before you, I just want to touch on that, that first point about, um, you know, assessing the scenario. I think for me, choice, it has to center around the capacity to make a choice. You can't mm. enter into the, you know, the actual, how they decide on that choice and whether or not that's a good decision because you may as well then make the decision for them. I think what you're concerned about is, is this person, do they have the, you know, mental capacity, et cetera, to understand what they're um, getting engaged in? But to, but to say that certain instances may be allowed and certain instances would not be, then you might as well strip the choice entirely. Yeah. Again, a very good distinction, right? So it, you might care deeply about someone's personal preference even if you think that they're mistaken about it or ought not to share that value, but provided they do so under conditions of free choice, then you want to respect the choice. Yes. So, so for me, euthanasia based on because I just broke up with my boyfriend or euthanasia based on, you know, terminal illness, there could be no state intervention there. Once you've determined that person who wants to be euthanized because they've broken up with their, you know, partner, that they have the requisite mental state to understand the consequence of their decision. That's all that matters. You cannot engage in the, the premise of why they're making that decision. So I think. What you might want to do is this, is you might want to have a fair process to, de- to determine whether the person is, has informed consent. Yeah. So let's assume that they say it on the day of the breakup. Okay. They yeah. say, my life's not worth living anymore. My boyfriend of three weeks just broke up with me. I want to die. Okay. So you might think at that moment they have diminished capacity, that they're in a state of sudden shock, of depression, that they're not really exercising their rational faculties, they're not exercising an autonomous choice. And you might yeah. say, okay, well, we're going to take your preference seriously. Um, and, you know, if you, if you keep expressing this preference for a period of, let's say, six months, then you can have the pull. Yeah. You know, but if your preference has shifted at that point, you know. But, I mean, bring it back to drugs. It sounds like actually we're now creating a very huge administration around that initial decision. So it sounds to me that, you know, people might need to come in. Well, one, we need to ascertain they've been properly educated about the consequences mm. of that drug. And then we need to assess their mental capacity. So that might mean forcing them to go to, you know, compulsory therapy or consultation with a psychologist who can determine that they haven't just come from a traumatic, you know, incident, that there's been sufficient time between that incident and the choice they're making today. So by the time we actually get to deciding whether or not someone can purchase this drug, it seems like we've, you know, exhausted 
you know, many resources. And what do we do then with people who cannot afford to, to go through that initial approval process? Does the state pay for you to get therapy so that it can determine that it's allowed to sell it to you? Or are we saying that perhaps then taking drugs might only be restricted to, you know, a rich few who can then afford to go through the licensing, if we can call it that, process in order to be allowed to, to consume drugs? So I think what you want to do is you want a spectrum, right? So I think licensing is a good example. Um, the more severe the thing is, you know, the, the, the greater the certainty of a bad thing occurring to you. So in other words, in the euthanasia pill case, it is certain that you will die and it is a, an irreversible thing. It seems to my mind fair that you want a fair amount of obstacles and regulations in place before someone can make that choice, mm-hmm. given how severe it is. If someone wants to take a puff of a, of a joint, you might say, well, okay, you know, the chances of you dying or having any severe, mm. you know, injury are very unlikely. Yeah. But I think know. we're determined, we're talking about now those irreversible, well, supposedly less um, reversible, yeah. well, at least we know so that heroin or cocaine, something yeah. a bit so, stronger. And- so you would have different licenses for different drugs. As is, Again, we'd just be context sensitive. Right. So you might think that you make it, you know, more and more difficult, the more and more severe the thing is, the more it's going to undermine your autonomy. You might think that um, this is what we do when we're looking at any other risky activity. So you don't just let someone, you know, um, jump jump out of a plane first time skydiving. You know, you say we well, have to go through a training course. You know, we're going to create yeah. obstacles to make sure that you that you're sufficiently able to mitigate against any risks. Maybe there's certain drugs that you can take under better conditions that are less likely to cause other bad things from happening. Um, you know, all that sort of stuff seems like yeah. a a reasonable way to deal with it by having this regulatory framework, and you can deal with it on a case by case basis. On the cost issue, it's not clear that the state always has to bear it, right? You might just think that. Private individuals have to bear the cost like they would if they want to do any other risky activity. If you want to learn how to, you know, become a, a snowboarding instructor, you have to pay some private entity to get trained. You know. Uh, well, yes, but no one's going to, you know, put you in jail if you decide to tie a rope to a tree and bungee jump off a cliff because you didn't go through a private um, and licensed licensed instructor. You are free to do that. Um. Yeah, so I suppose you might think that if we're willing to make those concessions in other risky cases, we ought not to do so with the drugs. Um, but, I mean, you know, if you're an unlicensed driver, for example, you know, you get punished for that. Uh, and I think there are sanctions yeah. for certain kinds of risky sports. If you do them without a license, um, there might be a sanction for it. Yeah. But I think, yeah. I mean, it's obviously a complex discussion. I don't think we will resolve it um, today. But I think the moment you're talking about licensing or how you can regulate the harms that, that you know, that behavior might might cause, as opposed to just the initial act itself, mm. I think you're probably moving towards a more reasonable framework in which people might still be able to engage in the activity, but with reduced harms to themselves and to others, or at least with more obstacles and certainty before they are able able to put themselves in a position where they can harm others or themselves. Yeah, yeah. So in, in a way, what you're doing is respecting two different values. You know, the one is, you know, the sense of true autonomy. Are you making a free choice? And can we test that with our test? And the other one is, can we prevent you from causing harm to third parties? You know, so with, with getting a driver's license, we want to make sure that you don't kill yourself in the car, you know how to drive, and you don't kill a bunch of pedestrians. Yeah. So we have good reason to, you know, make it a formal structure and regulate it. And you might think the same with certain kinds of drugs. Yeah. I mean, and also an issue we haven't really touched on, but I think we were going in the direction a bit earlier with the black marketers. Mm. I mean, of course, some, some argue that the moment you create a black market, it drives underground and, you know, you, you know, it raises costs, etc. But I'm not too particularly concerned about making drugs more expensive or making them cheaper in order for people to consume. So I'm less worried about the cost implications of drugs once you drive them to a black market. But I think there are other consequences of a black market that 
are worthy of attention aside from maybe how that might relate to the cost of drugs. So one around quality and that perhaps if you're a more open market and people are better easy, more, uh, more easily able to share, you know, which provider was, was good and which was bad. Mm. And that might force, um, you know, poor, poor standards and poor quality drugs out of the, out of the market. And the other concern for me is that for those who then do become addicted, even though we have this lengthy, let's say, licensing process for some, those who then finally do engage in that activity and should they become addicted, as it stands right now, there's very limited opportunity, or at least sometimes people feel scared to then seek help because of the retribution they might face or the mm. punishment that they might face um, because of it. Whereas it was illegal, it might allow people to more readily seek help when it's needed. Yeah, so you're right. There are a bunch of things that the state can do to – the state might think it's – we don't like it if people do drugs, but we're not going to punish you for it. What we're going to do is we're going to provide access to what they do in um, Portugal and, and the Netherlands. They have access to free needles, for example. So one of the problems that heroin users have is they pick up all sorts of diseases from needle sharing. So they say, come to us, we'll give you clean needles. Okay. Um, also, what they, they've done is create a social stigma around drug use. So there's, there's a park called Needle Park where people publicly shoot up heroin. Now, if you're, if you're a kid walking through this park, you know, the, all the uh, mystical allure of heroin is now, you know, in front of you and you go, I don't think I want to be that junkie. I'm not very keen on doing this. So they find they have very low amounts of drug use because it's it's readily stigmatized through social interaction. Yeah. Um, so that's one way to deal with yeah. the problem. And as you say, the quality assurances make quite a difference. An interesting case that's happened in the States is this um, regulation of a legal drug market. So um, – in the 90s, there was a, a drug developed to deal with um, severe pain. So people who'd been in accidents, car accidents, or sporting injuries uh, could take this drug called OxyContin. And the idea mm-hmm. was that it would uh, relieve the pain for a period of 12 hours, and they said the wonderful thing about it is it's not addictive. And so people flocked to the drug, got um, prescribed all over the show. Um, turns out they were wrong about it not being addictive. Okay, And once mm-hmm. the data came in, they decided to, to, to change the regulation of the drug. So they basically hauled it off the market. And what they did then was create a whole bunch of junkies who said, well, I'm, I am addicted to this drug. I'm now in immense pain, and I will do anything to make sure I can get access to it. So then they have to access the black market. Um, you've got a very small supply of this um, once illegal pharmaceutical. And so then people turn to an illegal alternative um, being heroin, also an, an opioid drug. And yeah. so in the States, they've got this epidemic of um, opioid deaths. So they have 50,000 people a year dying from these overdoses. And so part of the problem with different kinds of regulation or the, the unexpected consequences. Yeah. yeah, the unintended consequences. You know, so the state must always try and bear that kind of thing in mind. You know, it's awful that they're in a situation where you've got this mm. many people dying from an unregulated product and placing huge burdens on a public state health infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I'm more in favor of creating that open environment in which there's, there's, you know, it makes it easier for people to seek help and to improve standards. But on that initial point that you made about perhaps even providing clean needles, I mean, even if I were to agree to it on a principled level, I think in a list of priorities, I might, because you might then wish to think, okay, I understand why you're providing the clean needles because people are going to take drugs and it might actually ease the burden of the healthcare system of people coming in because they've been using, you know, contaminated needles, etc. Might be a net saving, right? Yeah, exactly. But I'm thinking that could be used in many other areas as well. You know, the reason many 
you know, seek, let's say, health care because maybe they're, they're malnourished and they come in with all sorts of, um, you know, conditions related to put, you know, lifestyle, not necessarily because of their choice, but maybe they don't have access to quality food. Hmm. So now should hospitals run feeding schemes to, to reduce the number of malnourished patients that might come in from poor areas? I'm just saying there might be other health concerns that could be solved by you know, giving people access to, to food and to other things. And I think that maybe clean meals might start to be lower down that list. So I suppose in any instance where you get a, if you're the state um, and you're going to get a saving out of the intervention, then there can be no objection because you've, you've saved public money. Well, unless there's a choice between where you, where you should make that saving. Well, no, because you just wind up with extra money. So it, it enables you to make more and more saving. So if let's say you say buy giving out free needles, which cost me a thousand rand, uh, I then save on a whole bunch of people with hepatitis, which would have cost me 2,000 rand, so I have an extra 1,000 rand, which I can stick into Gwen's feeding scheme for the homeless. <laughs> yes. Uh, so okay. you might think that, you know... Yes, that true, yes. You don't need to transfer... Sa- yeah, exactly. Yeah. 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 You don't need to transfer savings. You can have savings in both... Yes. Malna, you know, yeah, they, right, it's, exactly. sort of, it's this, it's this um, virtuous, virtuous snowball cycle, of, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think we've had a very good um, discussion today, and we've sort of looked at, you know, the main issues here really are about, you know, protecting people's autonomy, the state being legitimately concerned about um, certain people's lack of capacity and wanting to protect mm-hmm. them, and protecting third parties, and how you're not cut between this choice of no regulation and banning everything and criminalization, exactly. that really we can pick some sort of reasonable policy. Thanks from me, Cecilia Koch from the Friedrich Naumann Foundation for Freedom, for joining us for this episode of Freedom Versus. We hope you found it thought-provoking. And thanks to Mtoba Chapi for the editing, visuals and graphics, and Greg Cohen for the audio. Please subscribe to our podcast and our YouTube channel, Freedom Versus. That's two words, and versus is spelled V-E-R-S-U-S. There, you can watch the discussions between Gwen and Mark. Our YouTube channel also features additional content. Enjoy! This is CliffCentral.com.